everyone. Welcome to Talking Research. I am Asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations. This conversation features an in-depth discussion of sexual violence both in specific cases and more generally. In this episode I'm joined by Dr. Melanie O'Brien who is a senior lecturer in international law at the University of Western Australia. She's also an award-winning teacher of international humanitarian law and legal research. Her research examines the connection between human rights and the genocide process and sexual and gender-based crimes against women in conflict zones, which is what we're going to be talking about today. and also how the legal systems and international tribunals have responded to violence against women in conflict zones and what remains to be done she has conducted field work and research across six continents and she simplifies her research and what she has found in this episode thank you so much for listening and for continuing to keep the podcast going if you have any feedback on this episode or the podcast in general please feel free to reach us there are links to our social media handles and our email address in the podcast description and if you have any feedback you can also leave a review on apple podcasts and rate us if you need there are links to organizations that support survivors of sexual violence and gender based violence in various countries and you can find those in the podcast description as well But that's everything from me. Thank you so much for listening and let's dive in. Hi Melanie, welcome to Talking Research. How are you doing? Hi Asmita, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself? I'm well too. I've been I have a bit of a cold, which is probably why I sound a little disgusting. So sorry about that. Oh yeah, you sound lovely. Oh, thank you. I mean, this is one of those rare times I'm glad this is not in person uh because <laughs> that I'd just be there blowing my nose all the way through. But um no, I mean, I'm really excited to talk to you about your amazing work and to start, I just wanted to ask you if you could introduce yourself in a way that you like to be introduced. Sure. So, I'm Dr. Melanie O'Brien and I work as a senior lecturer in international law. in the law school at the University of Western Australia which is in Perth um on the very west coast of Australia and I also serve as the second vice president of the International Association of Genocide Scholars which is an association I've been involved in for almost 10 years now and another uh thing that I do that's quite important to me is I volunteer with the Australian Red Cross in their International Humanitarian Law Committee which I have also been doing for almost 10 years That sounds that sounds absolutely amazing. So I wanted to ask you how you got into researching sexual violence and um you know you're looking at how uh sexual violence is used and how it manifests in conflict zones and I was just wondering what got you started down this line of research. So this goes all the way back to high school actually. And in high school I studied the highest level of history and I got really interested in some of the areas that I studied which included the holocaust it included chinese modern history and so I got really interested in this idea of why one person 
would do something like that to another person. And I always wanted to be a lawyer. (laughs) There was nothing else I ever wanted to be. So it kind of eventually came together that I've specialised in international criminal law because I also have a degree in history and I love history. And if you combine uh, law and history, really you get uh, international criminal law because when you're talking about mass atrocities, you have to look at the history of the situation. So I also became interested then in human rights and this this idea, as I said, of how can one person do such horrible things to another person. But as I've also gone through that, I have always been essentially a, a feminist but have become a much stronger feminist. And so in my work in looking at international criminal law and human rights, I've looked, I, I've had quite a strong focus on women and how women are treated and the rights of women, but also the experience of women from a human rights concept context, but also in the context of mass atrocities. And so it all kind of links together. So when we're talking about specifically working on sexual violence, that's where it, it fits in there. So it's thinking about this question of how people can do such horrific things to other people, but really focusing down on the treatment of women in our society and in mass atrocities. Right. And I wanted to say, you know, reading this paper that we're going to be discussing today and there will be a link in the episode description. So I would highly encourage everyone to check it out. I mean, you'd focus on uh, how criminal courts you know, look at sexual violence in conflict zones and how they respond and what's inadequate there. So I can definitely see that legal interest that you had manifesting there, which which is really cool, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So of course, you know, because I did a law degree and I became a lawyer, I, my interest is focused through the legal perspective. So it's thinking about how do we do something about this? How do we prevent and punish through the legal system, basically? Right. right. And, you know, coming back to the heart of this issue, I had a really broad question to get us started. Uh, can you walk us through how sexual violence is used as a weapon of war? We've, heard, we've all heard this phrase a lot that sexual violence or rape is used as a weapon of war. You'll always find it in conflict zones. You know, conflict zones are usually, some sociologists would say, a conducive factor, uh, a conducive context to sexual violence. So just, you know, to tell us a bit more about that and what forms do these crimes take, just to give us some background. Absolutely. So, and you're, you're right, this phrase is used a lot, you know, that essentially rape is a weapon of war. And that's because it is. So we see it used as a weapon of war, but also as a weapon of genocide. And essentially the way it gets used is to show dominance over the enemy. So when you're fighting an enemy, one of the things you can do is say, we rape your women and in doing so, we are demonstrating that you cannot protect your women and that we are more powerful than you because we can do that. So that is essentially the way it gets used as a weapon of war. But it also gets used as a weapon of genocide. And the way it's used in genocide can also sometimes be the way it gets used in in conflict as well. Women are perceived as the representation of a nation. So women reproduce. We carry children and we birth children. 
And so therefore women are seen as the reproducers of a nation or of a particular group of people. And therefore, by raping women, you are by proxy raping that nation or that group of people as they are defined in the particular context. So it could be a religious group or an ethnic group. And so it's about their identity as well as them just being the enemy group. And in genocide, they're the targeted group. And so it really is very much about the identity. And it can be quite extreme in some cases. So for example, if it's the father's identity that's passed on to the child, then the rape can be a way of trying to impregnate women from the other group and therefore passing the father's identity onto the children. And we saw that happen in, for example, in, in the conflict in the former Yugoslavia where Bosnian women were raped by Serb men and gave birth to children and were subsequently subject to the women and the children also, you know, constantly subject to verbal abuse because of the fact that her child had a Serb father. So it's an ongoing thing. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, until the child becomes an adult. So we're talking 18, 20 years of this kind of verbal abuse. So it is, it, it's quite a powerful weapon that they use because it's something that continues on um, in situations like that. And it's also a way specifically for the perpetrators to um, stop, like I've talked about trying to impregnate women, but it's also a way for them to stop the targeted group or the enemy group from actually reproducing. Because often crimes of sexual violence are so horrific that the women who are victims of this are no longer able to reproduce. So that is quite a strong motivator behind that as well. And so you asked me about the forms of the crimes as well, and I've, I've mentioned rape. Rape is, is the number one. It is extraordinarily ubiquitous in mass atrocities as, as war crimes or as genocide or as crimes against humanity. It's incredibly ubiquitous, particularly against girls and women, but men and boys do experience it as well. Mm. We also see sexual slavery is the next, uh, the, the crime that happens second most, really, we could say. And I mean, obviously, I haven't, I'm not talking about a statistical, but just in my research, you find that there are the most charges will be for rape, and the second most charges are for sexual slavery. So, this is where uh, girls and women get kept as sexual slaves. So, kept in slavery, but specifically for the purpose of uh, sexual services for the person who's enslaving them, but also often for other men as well. Now, there are other forms of sexual violence generally that take place that don't involve actual rape, and they can be anything from forced nudity, for example, to sexualized mutilation of women's bodies, such as cutting off their breasts. There's another there's another uh, crime that tends to be included in the discussion of sexual violence, which is forced marriage. Yeah. But it's not technically a crime of sexual violence. So there's a bit of an issue there with categorization because forced marriage does tend to involve rape within it, but it doesn't have to. And the concept of forced marriage is more about being forced into the marriage itself, this union, so to speak, with someone else. So 
in terms of thinking about what are the categories, forced marriage is really borderline and shouldn't necessarily be lumped into as seen as only sexual violence in the same way that rape and sexual slavery and general sexual violence is. Right. And I suppose these char- uh, the, these categories are quite interlinked, aren't they? So just because one thing is gendered violence, it can't. It, it's not that it can't be sexual violence. It's they all often shade into each other, don't they? And what you said it reminded me of um, of of uh, you know uh, what happened in 1947 during the partition in uh, India. Uh, you know, when Pakistan was created and the British partitioned India and um, there were, you know, so many stories of women who were, uh, Muslim women who were raped and, you know, uh, abducted by Hindu families and Hindu women who were raped and abducted by Muslim families and, you know, just like for the purpose of erasing their uh, previous religious identity and as you said, women are seen as the reproducers and they're, see, they're seen as carrying on that identity. So to stop that identity from um, being carried forward, you know. Uh, but thank you for explaining all of that so well and giving us um, those examples. That was very, very insightful. Now, I wanted to ask how the prosecution of these crimes has evolved since the last century and we've sort of come into a time where there's no you know last century we had two world wars and you know we had these sort of um open global conflicts but i suppose uh since then it's kind of moved on to proxy wars and you know more sort of regional conflicts and um more more inter, international conflicts as opposed to something of the scale of a world war but definitely you know conflict zones still persist and genocide still happen so how has um the prosecution of these crimes of sexual violence in these contexts changed and evolved so you're absolutely right the the way that conflict uh takes place has changed quite dramatically in the past century And now we see the majority of conflicts are actually what we call non-international armed conflicts. Uh, An an international armed conflict is a conflict between two states, between two countries. And a non-international armed conflict is a conflict between either a state, so a government essentially, and non-government forces, or it can be a conflict between separate, uh, two or more non-government armed forces. Mm -hmm. And so those are the majority of conflicts that we see today. So there's that, but there's also how conflicts actually take place as well. Because we think back, you know, we think about World War I and World War II, and we think about men in uniform and one party is on one side of the line and one is on the other and they shoot at each other and there are trenches and mud and, you know, there are planes overboard, uh, planes overhead. So we think of those kinds of things. But it's quite different now and there's a lot of fighting involved in cities right. and an inability to tell who is fighting. So it is a very, very different context to what we saw 100 years ago in, or, or even less than that even in terms of what conflicts look like. And it is quite very, very challenging for civilians to be in this context to, to try and go and continue living their daily lives in cities that are just being 
bombarded from above and they can't tell who is who. People don't wear uniforms, so they can't actually tell who are there to attack them or not. So it creates a a lot of difficulty and it also creates difficulty in terms of accountability. Hmm. So when we look at the law around crimes of sexual violence, uh, we look at, and we're talking about conflict, we have to look at international humanitarian law. So international humanitarian law is the law of armed conflict. It's right. a set of laws that regulate the means and methods of warfare, so how we fight our wars. And it's found in a variety of sources and the most well-known that people will know are the Geneva Conventions of 1949. So when we look to the Geneva Conventions, we don't actually see a lot of content about sexual violence. We do see uh, what's known as common Article 3. So it's Article 3 that's the same across all of those Geneva Conventions. And it outlaws what's called outrages upon personal dignity, in particular humiliating and degrading treatment. So it's very generic, but that does include sexual violence in there. And then in the fourth Geneva Convention, uh, it, this specifically says that women shall be especially protected against any attack on their honour, in particular against rape, enforced prostitution or any form of indecent assault. And then the additional protocols that came about in the 1970s to these Geneva Conventions note that women should be the object of special respect. So it's quite interesting. This is our starting point here where we're talking about women's honour and special respect for women. So it's a very specific way of looking at sexual violence, about being about honour. So it's not about bodily or sexual integrity or autonomy. It's about honour. So you can see it's a very old-fashioned perception of it. Mm. And so you know, you've, you've asked me how have they evolved and that's why it's important to talk about that because there has been a very significant evolution in how the law has evolved to actually prosecute perpetrators of sexual violence. So moving on from this idea of it being about honour and uh, so what happened was we then jumped to the 1990s where we had the creation of ad hoc international criminal tribunals. So the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda and the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. And it was through these ad hoc tribunals that we actually started to see something being done about crimes of sexual violence. And and I'll I'll, I'll talk about that more a little bit later. But it's essentially through those uh, tribunals that we've seen this coming about. But it's quite challenging Uh, now in thinking about the context of conflict being internal armed conflict to ensure that there is accountability for for crimes of sexual violence, but particularly those that are committed by state forces. And and that sounds almost ironic, but it's often the non-state armed forces that do get captured and do get sent for prosecution and crimes that are committed by state forces. So the traditional country's army are the ones that tend to get away with it because obviously those are the people in power and so they just say well you know we've got peace now so let's leave it as it is you know we don't want to upset the cart so it is Mm. still problematic uh, even though we have seen an an evolution in definitions right right and 
and i guess like the the issue with uh defining you know honor as part of the 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 crime or you know the the, the issue is that it's what is honor you know like how do you accommodate for cultural differences in how honor is uh thought of and you know would something like you know if a woman is walking down the street or if you know anyone is walking down the street and they're harassed you know would that count as something that attacks their honor it's it's just that kind of comes to my mind as some of the more obvious issues with uh using honor as part of this definition if that makes sense absolutely it is highly problematic i mean what is honor it's very subjective and also tends to often be uh defined with in connection with men as well mm. you know so it's it's an attack on a woman is an attack on on a man's honor as well so mm. you know rather than actually thinking about the victim it's about the victim's autonomy bodily and sexual autonomy and integrity and them as a person rather than this abstract notion of honor that can't really be defined yeah absolutely absolutely and you've told us about what the legal international law provisions are and you know there seems like there has been an attempt to prosecute these crimes provide justice but you know that brings up the question of why these legal systems have been slow on delivering justice to victims of wartime sexual violence reading your article and more broadly one one looks looks at this this there's been a huge miscarriage of justice uh, in that most of these crimes are not you know there are very few convictions and you know that just Th- that just really makes me question why that is you know why have legal systems been slow on delivering justice it's a great question and i'm going to bring you back to a lower level than atrocities mm. because this problem exists at, in peacetime it exists yeah. in domestic legal systems and basically that has filtered through into the conflict context uh, the atrocity context and into the international courts as well. So when we look at problems at domestic level there are there's very low reporting of sexual violence by women and the reason is that they go to the police station and they they're not believed. That's right. the first step. And this entrenched idea in the male psyche that you you can't, you know, women aren't really raped you know they're they're always asking for it they always want it even if they say no they really mean yes so there's a lot of men have that attitude and in having that attitude that actually runs through our our legal our law enforcement systems and that's comes through how women are treated when they go and they try to report sexual violence against them and it's really problematic i mean there are just repeated stories of women who are trying to report sexual violence or even domestic violence and they are treated with disdain and eventually they just give up because nobody supports them through their process if they do end up going to court a lot of things we see is that it, you know it's called the he said she said situation where you know she says one thing he says the other of course they always deny it and then the man is believed because a man is always believed over a woman and and we've seen in history times where actually a woman's testimony in court 
is not valid unless a male has the same testimony to back it up. Mm. So this is, you know, and that's generally, let alone in the context of a sexual violence allegation. So these are the types of challenges that women are facing. And we also see, especially today, women who, you know, where their stories of sexual violence are made public, they're then absolutely crucified by the media. So they are just re-traumatized and re-victimized by going through this process. And we also see how actually when women go to court and they're on the stand, they can be absolutely just vilified by mm. defense lawyers. So it, it, can, it can be a truly awful, awful process for a victim of sexual violence to go through. And that's at, you know, that's at domestic level. And then you get to, do we have a point where there is a conviction or there isn't a conviction and often there aren't convictions and there can often be really horrific findings in cases. You know, we just saw one last week in Australia where there's a CCTV footage of a woman who had been dragged into a, into a, a, between some buildings and the man had pushed her onto the ground. And I mean, you watch it and you're, you're thinking, oh my goodness, he's going to rape her. It's the only thing that goes through your mind. And yet <laughs> the magistrate on the case said, oh, I, you know, he says there was no intention to rape, so we're not going to convict him of intention to rape. God. Despite the fact that you can, that's the only thing, everyone who watches that footage, the first thing you think is he's going to rape her because yeah. it's quite clear. He didn't because uh, luckily there was an off-duty police officer that came along and so the perpetrator ran off. But if that person hadn't come along, uh, I have no doubt that he, was, he would have at least attempted to rape that woman. Mm. So these are the types of challenges that women are facing at domestic level. And it's important, I know that my work is about the mass atrocity, the international level, but it's really important to think of the context at peacetime and at domestic level as well, because that's what the international system is drawing from. And that's why they've been slow delivering justice to the victims, because they're drawing from this idea. There are a couple of other reasons as well that are specific to the conflict context. So the first one is that rape in war tends to be, it's a given it's something that's seen as inevitable. It's seen as part and parcel of war. It's seen as a reward for the hardworking male soldiers. And therefore, it's just part of this concept of boys will be boys. So therefore, it's not really something bad that happens. And connected to that is just simply the idea that it's acceptable to rape women. And therefore, that's not a problem. So we don't need to prosecute for it. So essentially what we're talking about is these entrenched patriarchal systems. And remember that the same as domestic systems, international systems are set up by men generally. We're seeing some change in that gradually, but generally they're being set up by men, so they prioritise crimes against men. And that's essentially, if you, you've got to think about this broader context of gender inequality and just essentially the lack of access of women at all levels to true justice for crimes, gender-based crimes against them, but particularly sexual violence. So it's all connected. The things that we see happening at domestic level, it's also very similar to international level. 
And in fact, though, overall, I do want to say that I think the international level has made significant progress and is actually far ahead of the domestic systems when it comes to thinking about sexual violence. What you said is so interesting and such an important point that we need to look at uh, how these crimes and these atrocities are treated in peacetime, um, you know, to get a broader perspective on why they might not be, you know, prosecuted or why there might not be enough convictions in wartime because absolutely, I mean, this, the, the, the amount of prosecutions and convictions for rapes in England, in Wales, in, you know, all of these uh, supposedly developed countries, they've hit an all-time low in 2020. And, you know, um, th- these activists and researchers and scholars often say that it's almost like it's rape is decriminalized because there's the, the amount of convictions are so few and far and in between, you know, uh, it's and that trial process, as you said, it's so traumatizing. It can be so traumatizing for survivors to go through so definite obvious gap uh, there and i wanted to say that we're talking about when we talk about rape in uh, wartime or genocide you know we're talking about women who might be refugees or who might you know uh, be the most vulnerable in society who might not have access to any legal protections any post-trauma support who might have precarious, uh, you know, uh, resident statuses, who might not know, you know, who might be living in refugee camps and might not know where, you know, they'll they'll end up and, you know, where their next meal might be from. So Absolutely. It's, I mean, if you're thinking about that exact concept, you know, thinking about where their next meal is coming from, their priority isn't going to also be trying to get justice for their situation because they're just trying to live day by day. And you see that, you know, at the refugee camps we have around the world at the moment are so heavily populated. It's just extraordinary. And the, the, you know, the international humanitarian aid community works really hard to provide services, but it is really logistically impossible to provide outstanding services in all the ways that refugees need for that many people Mm. and and so it is incredibly difficult for people to even think about the idea of justice yet when they're in refugee camps you know when they're just thinking about what what about the roof over my head where can I get clean water sanitation food Um, but also their own safety because actually sexual violence in refugee camps is a huge problem. Um, For example, uh, in the Rohingya refugee camps in Bangladesh, it is a significant problem, particularly for teenage girls. And we're also, what we're also seeing is a a lot of trafficking, Mm. which is leading to forced marriage where people are trying to get their daughters out for a better life. But in fact, they're just marrying them off to a to an older man in another country and so I mean there really are huge difficulties that continue when we're talking about sexual violence for these people who have fled conflict who have fled genocide and have ultimately ended up in these overcrowded refugee camps yeah yeah and really just keeping that perspective in mind when we when we think about them and you know, we've talked about the, the, the how low convic- conviction rates are and, you know, how uh, during wartime uh, there is this lack of convictions of sexual violence, this lack of, you know, um, 
अकाउंटेबिलिटी फॉर सर्वाइवर्स फ्रॉम द लीगल जस्टिस सिस्टम फ्रॉम द क्रिमिनल जस्टिस सिस्टम एंड आई वॉन्ट टू आस्क यू अबाउट दैट यू नो हाउ हैव दीज ट्राइब्यूनल्स एंड लीगल सिस्टम्स ट्राई टू एड्रेस दिस लैक ऑफ कन्विक्शन आई मीन हैज देर बेन एन एफर्ट दैट वीर सींग देर हैज बेन सो आई डोंट वॉन्ट इम्प्लाय दैट इट्स ऑल टेरेबल इट्स जस्ट बेन स्लो राइट सो फॉर एग्जाम्पल द करेंट I mean the system that we have this idea of international criminal justice started after World War II and sexual violence wasn't even on the radar then. So we had to wait until the 1990s when the ad hoc tribunals were formed to actually see something be done about sexual violence. But even then it wasn't really there very much. Like if you look at the statutes of the international criminal tribunals for Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia, sexual violence really doesn't appear very much in it like it's it's very minimal surprisingly very minimal and this is despite the fact that rape was ubiquitous in bosnia and in rwanda and and you'll you'll notice i use this word ubiquitous a lot but because it's the perfect word because the scale of rape that takes place is is just extraordinary like it really is and i've been doing this research for a long time and i i just never cease to be shocked by the scale of rape um mm-hmm. against women and the the extremely violent way that it's carried out incredibly brutal and violent when we're talking about rape in conflict we're actually rarely talking about one man who rapes one woman once we are usually talking about a woman who will be gang raped by multiple men and in and and in quite horrific circumstances and, and you know they can be raped with objects and and it is really very brutal and so the fact that it wasn't on the agenda of these two ad hoc tribunals when they first started is is quite shocking actually yeah. and it took until the case of Akayesu which was through the Rwanda tribunal uh and its judgment came out in 1998 and that was the first case that actually looked at rape and it was really a catalyst because after that we have seen a lot more cases go through ad hoc tribunals the Rwanda tribunal the Yugoslavia tribunal and also the special court for Sierra Leone um a few significant cases the the Akayesu one Chelebichi Focha cases cases from the ICTY often looked at essentially what were sexual slavery camps or houses that took mm. place where women were held and just repeatedly raped in the former Yugoslavia and there were the cases from the special court for Sierra Leone as well looked at that and mm. since then we've also seen so we've seen the the development of the international criminal court and its statute has a lot more focus on sexual violence so it does include rape sexual slavery sexual violence uh forced pregnancy so there was a huge push when the rome statute of the international criminal court was drafted from women's non-governmental organizations to make sure that there was adequate coverage of sexual and gender based violence in the rome statute of the international criminal court and they were successful with that so the icc has that ability because it has those crimes there it hasn't 
quite used them as well. So there's been a quite a bit of critique of the ICC that it hasn't actually made as much use of those provisions as it should have. But there have been cases and there are cases going through the court. Uh, for example, the Ntaganda case from Demo- uh, related to Democratic Republic of Congo, there were rape and sexual slavery convictions. And we've also uh, got the current case of Al-Hassan, which is related to also to rape and sexual slavery committed in Mali. Again, I mentioned before, rape and sexual slavery tend to be the most common charges of sexual violence. So we see that again coming through these cases in the ICC. And and for just to give an example of the context uh, in the DRC, the charges there included rape of child soldiers. So rape of children who were actually brought into, taken from their families to serve as child soldiers in these non-government armed groups. So it's not just thinking about civilian women that are attacked, but also these child soldiers brought into the groups as well. So that's, you know, thinking about how the tribunals are addressing it, uh, that's sort of a broad overview. But I also wanted to specifically mention what's quite important and what puts the tribunals ahead of domestic courts. There's a couple of main points. And the first one was that when AKSU started to, when they started looking at the crime of rape in the case, they didn't have a definition of rape. So the court actually had to create a definition of rape and sexual violence in international criminal law. And they looked at national jurisdictions and they found that it was incredibly challenging because national jurisdictions had all these varied definitions of rape. You know, for example, some jurisdictions still include uh, in the definition of rape that they exclude marital rape, you know, so they say a man can can rape, you know, there's no such thing as a man raping his wife, a husband raping yeah. his wife. Consent in marriage is, yes. you know, permanent or ongoing. or Yes, exactly. So there's all these different definitions and, and even down to the actual description of what rape is. So they really struggled with that. But the definition that they came up with, and that has since been upheld in other cases through the ad hoc tribunals, was really simple but also captured what it is. So they defined it, you know, they talked about rape as a physical invasion of a sexual nature committed on a person under circumstances that are coercive. So it was, it's quite broad. It's gender neutral. So it ensures that they can convict uh, sexual violence against boys and men as well as against girls and women. But it also talks about this concept of coercive circumstances, which is really important because some of the problematic domestic laws look at this idea of force. You know, there has to be force used. Mm. So actually the definition that the international tribunals have come up with is, is a really it's a really advanced definition. It's an appropriate definition. And they specifically state that these, this concept of coercive circumstances doesn't have to be evidenced by a show of physical force. And that's really important as well. So that was an amazing, an actual, like really incredible progression in thinking about crime of sexual violence generally. And it's something that, in fact, domestic courts should draw from if they're looking for a good definition of rape, an appropriate definition of rape. The other thing that I wanted to mention in how 
what they've done that they're, you know, really ahead of the game is how they treat victims. So this concept of starting on the foot of not believing your sexual violence victim doesn't exist. So they start from the premise that they believe the victim, but they also have implemented specific rules around how witnesses testifying about sexual violence are to be treated. And and, and essentially that's around respecting them. Mm. And it's the idea behind that was to make sure that victims of sexual violence that entered these courts were not treated in the way that victims on the domestic level have been treated, Mm. you know, as I was talking about earlier. And so I think those are two really important progressions that these courts have made, like really positive changes to the law. So we talk a lot of, you know, you know, there's a lot of criticism and things that could be done better, but I also really wanted to mention those two really positive actions that have happened in the courts at a substantive law level, but also procedural level. Mm. That was that was really well explained and I think especially what you said at the end about what domestic courts and domestic systems need to learn from uh, international tribunals, uh, you know, about how they treat uh, complainants and they don't put them on trial for being, you know, uh, being the complainant and saying that they were raped is I I think it's so sad that that's the bare minimum and that still needs to be achieved in uh, most, you know, jurisdictions. So you've done this really in-depth research into uh, these crimes and, you know, you've, you've, you've written extensively about court responses and, uh, you know, what these crimes can look like and how to improve these responses. So that was going to be my next question again, very broad. But what recommendations do you have for um, improving international court responses to these crimes? And what do you think can help improve these responses and, you know, provide justice to survivors? I think that the main thing, I think they've got good processes in place, but the main thing is to actually charge people with the offences. And and that's really been one of the main criticisms that people have made. Like, why are you not actually charging people with these crimes? Because we know they're being committed. We know yeah. that women were raped en masse. We know that girls and women were held in sexual slavery, but you haven't actually brought any charges. And, and so that's been the main criticism. And we've seen the ICC essentially, re- we've seen the Office of the Prosecutor, you know, seek to then add charges later, which is good. So they're listening. And they're thinking about it and trying to make sure that they actually do charge these kinds of crimes. So the ad hoc tribunals, they're coming to the end of their time. But it's about actually making sure that you talk about this in it. So, for example, looking at the cases that are coming before the International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Court about the Rohingya genocide, Mm. rape was a huge part of that and and sexual violence. So it's absolutely crucial that it gets talked about by the lawyers, whether it's at International Court of Justice level, so we're talking about state responsibility, the responsibility of Myanmar as a state, or at the ICC where it will be about individual criminal responsibility. Either way, they cannot, cannot leave out 
charges relating to the rapes that took place. So, so this is really the main thing, is to ensure that these crimes are included when they're actually taking action through a justice system, regardless of what that is. Right, right. Really important. And um, we haven't sadly reached that point where that happens. So really, really important point. And I completely agree, you know, in representations of war films and, you know, TV shows that show conflict, it's just a given that uh, women will be raped and, um, you know, all of that. And I think also just individually and as, you know, people living in peacetime, we need to like stop assuming that and stop uh, seeing sexual violence as a function of war. You need to stop normalizing it is what I'm trying to say. No, I, I, absolutely. You're absolutely right. Uh, and it is this normalization that creates a problem. Mm-hmm. And and we need to change our domestic systems as well, you know, to, to be able to make the change at yeah. the international level when we're talking about these crimes being committed on a mass level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, uh, one kind of normalization feeds into the other. So really looking at how this problem needs to be tackled at the root level so you know i'm looking at this uh this this incredibly insightful research that you're doing and even you know talking to you i've gained so much uh knowledge about this issue just from you know hearing you talk about your incredible work and this is this is clearly something that you've uh spent a lot of time and energy on what i'm trying to get at is if this research is emotionally draining and how you balance your emotional well-being with your work and the kind of change that you want to bring about you know when you're you're really looking at these really terrible stories and you know these these accounts of the most terrible atrocities that one human can inflict on the other how does that weigh on your mental health if I can ask you that and how you balance your mental health with this work it's really interesting that you ask me that because I've noticed a real uptick in the past couple of years in people talking about that to me or or saying to me, that must be really difficult, the work that you do. So it's really interesting to see that more people are interested in what kind of impact this research has, like how do researchers actually deal with doing such traumatic work? And the fact is that it is traumatic it is incredibly difficult and I've been doing it for a long time now and you obviously have to have a certain amount of resilience in the first place to do it. That goes without saying. But after the amount of time that I've spent researching in this field, it, it, it does take its toll. So there are a few ways that I, uh, I work to deal with this um, because obviously uh, there are times when it's when it's even harder than other times. So, for example, I do a lot of field work. I've done field work on every continent except Antarctica Mm. and, you know, visiting genocide sites, visiting genocide museums, interviewing genocide survivors, and it is very, very challenging, in particular when I'm doing the field work. It's a little bit easier when I'm at home and I'm working from my office. Uh, Not to say that isn't challenging because obviously... I'm reading reports and I'm reading testimonies and I'm listening to testimonies of survivors and, and you know, like human rights reports, these types of sources, which have really, really quite graphic content about 
the atrocities being committed in different places. So it's a, it, it's still difficult when I'm at, at work at home, so to speak, but it's more difficult when I'm in the field. And most of my field work is done by myself. Mm. So I'm traveling alone. I don't have anyone to offer, you know, emotional support, I guess, at the time. And that's obviously particularly difficult when I'm doing survivor interviews. That's, that's the most challenging. And I generally mostly interview women. And so the hearing their stories can be incredibly difficult. And it's really difficult at the time because I, I don't want to cry while I'm interviewing people because I want to make sure I can be strong for the person I'm talking to so that if they need to cry, they can, uh, but also to be able to get through the interview. But sometimes it can be very challenging. So when I come back to my apartment or hotel room, uh, I, I sometimes cry because the content of what I've heard from a particular woman is is quite distressing. So that is that is very difficult and the, the rare times when I have done field work with other people, I've actually found that easier because I've had support and we can also talk about other things when we've finished the field work at the end of the day. And so we can take our mind out of what the places that we visited that day. And, and that could be, you know, for example, last year I was in Cambodia with colleagues visiting, um, visiting site, genocide sites where people had been massacred. So, at the end of the day, if you've got someone there that you can both say, okay, let's go and have some dinner and just talk about something nice, that actually really helps. And I also, you know, make sure to obviously keep in touch with my partner back at home, mm. but it's still quite difficult. So actually last year I started seeing a therapist to talk about this and it had taken me a long time to find someone who was capable of dealing with the content of what I deal with. So I needed someone who had post-traumatic stress disorder uh, specialty. And it was quite challenging because most psychologists can't deal with that. Mm. Um, it, it's far outside their specialty. So, you know, a psychologist is really good if you want to talk about, hey, I'm really stressed at work or I'm having some relationship difficulties um, or, you know, perhaps I've you've you've lost a loved one and you want to talk about that. But when I Try to say, okay, I need to talk about the fact that I'm exposed to uh, a lot of details about genocide all the time. They, they just couldn't deal with that. So when I moved to Perth, I actually contacted a refugee, um, a refugee organisation here and I explained my situation. I said, can you recommend a specialist for me? Because they were an organisation that referred refugees who needed counselling. So they referred me to a specialist. So I've been doing that for about a year now. And I think it was a real catalyst last year because I was in Bosnia and then I was in Bangladesh interviewing women. Right. And so I came back from that and uh, I actually took mental health leave from work because it had really got to me. And so it has actually been really helpful to have a regular therapist and I've been talking with other scholars who also research quite distressing content. So a colleague of mine who does 
really incredible and important research in the domestic violence sphere. She's also seeing a therapist and has found it really helpful because she has a lot of, uh, she's done a a long-term study with domestic violence victims as well. So it, that's something, and I think we need to talk a lot more about it. And I would, would like to go on to, to try and do some research about what can researchers do to actually cope with this because mm. our resilience takes us so far, but when you've had, <laughs> when you've been working on it for as long as I have, it does start to get to you and you notice that mm. it is, it, sometimes it's a lot harder to deal with than it used to be. So uh, that, you know, going through this therapy is actually really helpful and, you know, just so that people can think about it, one of the things, for example, recently I had a work event on a Sunday afternoon and I actually just said to myself, I can't do this because I need the day off. I can't talk about the Holocaust today. Um, I need to have a day when I'm not doing that. And my therapist said to me that that's actually, he's like, that's, absolutely fine he said in fact that's healthy because you need your time out and away from this kind of topic area to be able to stay mentally healthy so I do you know I really my time outside of work is incredibly important because of the content of my work and and actually taking leave like taking holidays has always been something so critical for me because I need a good chunk of time where I'm not reading about genocide where I'm not talking to survivors. I have to have that time out. Otherwise, it just becomes too much. So that's, um, it's a long answer, but, uh, you know, that's, it, I think it's something that needs to be talked about a lot more. But the bottom line is, yes, it is quite emotionally draining. Hey, thank you for sharing that. You know, I'm really glad you, 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 you shared that. And I completely agree. I think even not that I'm qualified, but I agree with your therapist. I think you deserve that day off. You know, if anyone does, you deserve to take that Sunday off and not talk about these things. And you know, they- just take a break. Yeah, just be away from it. And I can say something that's that's quite interesting that um, he's determined about me is that I'm very angry at authorities. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but he said it. He said this is this is quite a productive anger and it's something that motivates my work. Mm-hmm. So I'm very angry at injustice and a lot of the injustice comes from authorities. It comes from authorities who are supposed to be looking after people. They're supposed to be supporting people. They're supposed to be providing people with their human rights and they're not doing that. So uh, the, <laughs> that's one thing I'm, I'm uh, that's come out of my therapy that... <laughs> Wow. I'm extremely angry at authorities. That's, I mean, but that sounds like something that's quite valuable to know. And I mean, I, I feel like I, I relate to that, not that, you know, I have the same experiences, but I definitely relate to uh, that anger at authorities. Um, I also wanted to say, you know, something that Gloria Steinem said uh, that really stuck with me when I was reading her book that, you know, when you're in this line of work and you're an activist and, you know, you're so passionate about what you're doing and uh, it's often hard to do what you're doing, you know, sometimes you need to give yourself that break because it's about longevity. It's about making sure that you you can keep doing this work that you want to do and you don't burn out because, you know, you're saying yes to everything and you feel like you have to be everywhere all the time and 
you know and and i feel like that word longevity really has stayed with me and that's something that i try to uh keep thinking about as well well that sounds that's great advice gloria steinem is a very wise and wonderful woman whose advice we should definitely follow yeah i love her absolutely i love her did you know there's a movie coming out soon really is it called I think it's the glorias that is it yes yes when is it out do you know because i've been looking i saw it on her instagram and i've been waiting for uh, for it to draw i'm not sure but i think it's not too far away uh it's okay. badged as a 2020 film so we'd like to hope it comes out this year that might be a good thing coming out of 2020 uh, other yeah. than all the terrible things that have been happening absolutely um, yeah and obviously i mean we don't know uh, these days at the, well, in 2020, films are not always going to the cinema. Sometimes they're going straight to Netflix or something like that. So I'm not even sure where. But, it, you know, it looks fantastic. Julianne Moore, Alicia yeah. Vikander and, and other women playing Gloria Steinem in various uh, times through her life. Yeah, I really, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm obsessed with Gloria Steinem. I mean, I'm just, uh, yeah, that's another, that's a whole another conversation. But yeah, I'm so glad we could fangirl about her here. Oh, absolutely. Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I don't know if we have time for one last question. Uh, I was just going to ask if you have one practical advice. I know that we're out of time, but I was just wondering if you have one practical advice uh, for everyone listening on what all of us can do on our own levels. And we don't all have to be, uh, you know, frontline respondents to sexual violence or working in this field but what all of us can do practically to prevent sexual violence and to support survivors yeah i mean this is a great question it's really important and and i've been talking about sexual violence in atrocities but i've also said that we need to tackle this type of thing at peacetime if we actually want to help eliminate sexual violence during atrocities so individuals can take action at their level to change how society society perceives and deals with sexual violence. So, so for example, call out sexual harassment when you see it. We need to create a society where this kind of conduct is, is unacceptable. Basically be part of a system that does not accept this. And, and for example, if you're in a role in the workplace in where you receive complaints about something like sexual harassment, you may be a manager, you may work in human resources, make sure that these complaints are properly handled and addressed. First of all, believe the victim and also stop being concerned with the perpetrator's reputation. This is something that always seems to come through. Oh, but he was so good at sport. Oh, he had mm. a career ahead of him. Well, so did she. So did yeah. the woman. And, and, and often her career is stymied or ruined because of being a victim of this and what happens to her. So if you're part of the system, make sure you're not contributing to the, like the perpetuation of sexual violence by pandering to the perpetrators. Mm. But the other thing is, these are issues you can lobby your politicians about. Write to your representatives about proposed laws. So for example, you might voice your support for a bill. For It could be something, say, proposing to outlaw coercive control as a form of domestic violence. Or it could be something that you want to speak out against, such as a law that is prohibiting and even criminalising abortion. So use your voice at many levels 
to show your politicians, but also those around you, your friends, your family, your colleagues, that any form of sexual violence is unacceptable, whatever the format, you know, whether we're talking about lewd comments in the form of sexual harassment all the way to rape. Because if we create a peacetime society in which sexual violence is unacceptable, then this will trickle into conflict situations and help to reduce sexual violence in atrocities as well. Incredible words to end on. Thank you so much, Melanie. And thank you for your truly, truly incredible, powerful work and all that you've been doing. Uh, We're so lucky that we have you doing this um, work. And I hope that, you know, there comes a time when you don't have to do this work. But uh, until then, I'm really grateful you're doing it. And thank you for making the time to come on the podcast and talk to me as well. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Azmita, for having me. It's been lovely. And I too hope that someday I would prefer sooner rather than later. I would not have to do this work. Here's hoping. Thank you.